0: Are listening to the Classic Sermons Podcast from preachthebible.org, a ministry of North Valley Baptist Church in Santa Clara, California. You will hear fervent, old-fashioned revival sermons from great preachers of the past. It is our desire that you will be helped by this gospel message. Romans chapter 12. And we begin at verse 9. Romans 12:9. Romans 12:9. Let love be without assimilation. Abhor that which is evil, cleave to that which is good. Be kindly affectioned one to another with brotherly love, in honor preferring one another. Not soulful in business, fervent in the spirit, serving the Lord. Rejoicing in hope, patient in tribulation, continuing instant in prayer. Now back to verse 11. Not soulful in business, fervent in spirit, serving the Lord. Now what's he saying? Paul is saying to these Christians, writing to him in Rome, he said, Now, you're to be fervent, you're to be on fire, you're to be wide awake, and you're to be ready to do whatever you can do. And that's what he's saying. And read the whole chapter all the way through. He admonishes them, told them what they should do, how they should go. Now, I'm taking a little word uh, fervent and using that for my thought this morning. Be a fervent Christian. Be a fervent, wide awake Christian. Wide awake, on fire, not stale. Some Christians are Stale. The testimonies are stale. They don't have the uh, the, the vibrancy of a, one with a living faith. They they lack something. And you say, "Oh God, I want to be a fresh, fresh Christian." I I, I learned to this dislike stale things. I born in poverty. I mean, rank absolute poverty. We bought bread from the bakery back in my boyhood days on Broadway in Louisville, Kentucky. Great big sackful of it for maybe 15 20 cents. It was all stale bread, two or three days old. That's all we could afford. My mother take it home. I can see her and put the loaves out on the table. Many of them, some of those stale you couldn't touch them, you couldn't do a thing with them. Some she had taken, put them over one side. I watched her sprinkle water on them and put them in the old fashioned oven. Not another gas stove, but an old fashioned oven. Put them in there and warm it up, and it really would taste pretty good. Except I couldn't forget it was stale bread. I didn't like stale bread. Don't like it now. Didn't like it then. I had to have it. That's all I had to eat. And we did. It. Now, wait a minute. We had nothing else. That's all we could do. And uh, it, it bothered me. I, I, I disliked back in my old, in my childhood days and my youth days, uh, old clothes. I never had a decent piece of clothes in my life until after I went to college. I went to college wearing a, a shirt made out of an obelisk flower sack. Try that one. Amen. That's all I had. We had nothing else. I had clothes given to me by others. We had no money. We had nothing at all. We were, we were in party row. Nothing. Nothing at all. And I can recall Christmas. My dad came home, from, uh, had a little job working on the street railway. Remember the old-fashioned? Oh, no, you're too young. The old-fashioned railway. Huh? in the city and made a few pennies out of it almost nothing came home for Christmas day and I was a boy going to Henry Clay School and a little brown sack with an apple and orange inside and a piece of candy that's all and he said son that's all I can afford he, 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 he was honest great man but he said we don't have it now I knew about poverty and I got to this like the old clothes and uh, I just just don't like it I like to have something new sometime. And uh, uh, better, uh, a stale, they were stale, oh, I, I, I used to drive cars, and uh, I love cars, and I know another man loves them too, and he's got pictures of them on the wall, I've never done that yet, but I may get to that, when I get old enough, but anyway, uh, I, I, the old cars, man alive, we had an old Ford car, that only run by persuasion, I mean, it wouldn't do a thing. It was terrible. And I recall, I, I grew dislike like them, just like them. And uh, I like new things that are vibrant and fiery and ready to go. And you do too. You're the same way. And you do that. Now, that's what God wants you to be. Now, Paul is pleading for wide awake Christians. And be fervent in spirit. Be fervent. Be warm. Be happy. Be rejoicing. Be moving. Be doing in spirit. And move on. That's what he was saying. Exactly what he said to them. Now I give you three very simple thoughts. Number one, a fervent Christian is a Christian who has faith in God. A fervent Christian has faith in God. Now Jesus said have faith in God. Mark eleven twenty two. I quoted a moment ago in Romans ten seventeen. Faith comes to hearing him of the word of God. Now you have faith at all times. I mean faith, faith in God, faith in God at all times, and that should change your life. Change your life, your faith in God. Young or old, no matter who you are, you're looking up. And you're put away your discouraging things and your perplexing problems that may face you. And look up and know that God is with you. And if God be for us, who can be against us? And you keep on going. Now, build your faith on the Word of God. A fervent Christian should have faith. that Build your faith on the Word of God. Read your Bible and let it get hold of your own heart. Believe God. Secondly, build your faith on the experience of others. Read Hebrews 11, for example. What did faith do for these men and women? And that's it. And build your faith on what God has done for others, men like George Mueller, huh? And others who would go right down the line. And then number three, build your faith on your own experience. Has God ever failed you? Not once. Is there any danger that God will ever fail you? Not a bit of danger. You know that. God cannot fail and you put your faith in Him and rest in Him. And you build your faith and keep your faith going higher and higher and believe God. Now listen. My poverty that I had as a boy, and still had one to finish high school when I went to college. I worked in college a whole way through, washing dishes in the dining hall, mowing grass in the yard. And I know all about poverty. But wait a minute. That was one of the best things ever happened to me. It gave me an appreciation for things and for people that I wouldn't have had. That's where even Camp Joy began. Our baby Joy died. My wife and I have never gotten over it. She was young, just a few weeks old. She died suddenly. Doctors couldn't explain it. But she was gone. But out of the death of our little one, God brought me to establish Camp Joy for children. I didn't have any money. Now, the average fellow said, well, it can't be done. You don't have anything. But I'd already gone through the poverty stage. I'd had that for years. So I said, "Uh, we're going to do it. And I began to pray. And one day I drove up the highway, Highway 58. I saw 100 acres of land for sale by TVA up on the side of the overlooking Lake Chickamauga. Beautiful, beautiful thing. I said, man, I'd like to have that for a a camp, for children's camp. I want to get them up there and get them saved. Bring them to the Lord. Help them, rich or poor, or white or black. Take them all. Just if they come, they they go free. They don't pay a penny. And I prayed about a thing. And one day I saw that land advertised in the paper, and it was advertised at a, going to be an auction sale at the at the, at the county hall, county uh, courthouse. And uh, I said, I'm going down. I didn't have any money, but I walked down and sat in the back of the building. And there's a crowd of people there to buy that land. Oh, beautiful, up over overlooking the lake. Many of you have been up there and you've seen it. And uh, uh, they got in, and so the man got up there, the auctioneer, and held a big flat plot uh, before us there to see the land, and he said, "This is it." And he said, "We'll start the bidding." He said, "Now it's worth many thousands of dollars, but uh, my company told me to start at three thousand and then go from there, and the highest bidder will get it." And they were all sitting there, ready and go to go. And when he said that, I stood up at the back of the building. And I was scared half to death, but I said, Sir, I bid three thousand dollars. You know what happened? They laughed at me. The crowd laughed, and he laughed too. Because that was the lowest bid. It was worth maybe two or three hundred thousand at that time. And you were starting a little little bid, and you said I said I bid three thousand. You knew who bought it? I did. You know how much you paid for it? Three thousand. Not a single person bid against me, not a one, not a one. And he wanted up, he begged for people to bid, and no one bid a thing, not a single thing. And when it got all through, I walked up front, and I said, Sir, I'm the man who, uh, who bought the property up there at uh, Lake Chickamauga. He said, No, you are. He said, I don't understand that. He said, I, I stood here and auctioned he this. said, I'm an auctioneer. I'm, I'm a professional with this thing. And he said, I got one bid from you for $3,000, and nobody bid against you. He said, I don't understand that. I said, I understand it. But I said, oh, I don't think you to understand it. I said, I prayed about it. And uh, he didn't understand that at all. Then I said, uh, mister, I've got a problem. I don't have any money. He said, uh, you mean you don't have three? I said, well, I haven't got 30 cents. And they said, uh, how are you going to buy the property? I said, will you give me one day? He said, I've been a fool already. I'll give you one day. But he said, if you don't have it tonight, you're done. You don't get it. It's all out. I'm sold again. And uh, I went out and got the money. I borrowed from people. $3,000 paid for Camp Joy. 100 acres of land. I walked in, paid him off. We began without a thing. And the camp began to grow. My people got behind it. And we've been now for these years. That's in 1946 to 1993. We take 3000 per summer free of charge. Uh, Everything been given to us, 55 horses, beautiful swimming pool, a big lake there for everything they'd like to have. Take the boys one week, girls the next week, divide them, never take them together counselors, stay with them all, and hundreds and hundreds of stay. Many of those who are saved there are now that are preachers and missionaries around the world, and I get letters from them. They talk about being saved at Camp Joy. Now wait, I'm saying that you have to have faith and have faith in God. Know that God will be with you and God will direct you and in your Sunday school work, in your preaching work, in your church, in your building program, all of it. Exercise that faith in God and rest on. Have faith in God. Last night, our great speaker here Brother David was telling his airplane story. When not had some story, man alive! And uh, when I began flying in planes, and I didn't like them at all, and uh, I'd go out to the airport, get on the one, and scared every time. And uh, I, I'm ready to die, but I don't want to die that way. And uh, so I'd get out there and get on. I remember getting on Eastern Airline when they used to come in Chattanooga, and I was going over to preach in Winston Salem. And I got on the plane, and I said, you know, if I could find someone that I know who's an experienced flyer and could sit with them, somebody ready, well, I'd be most happy, and that would help me some. i um, am scared anyway, and that was the old-fashioned day when they had the two propellers, you know, and they tailed the plane down, what do they, type like they call them, but Eastern Airlines had them. And I got on there, and lo and behold, I met a man. You won't believe it. I met a man who was named Mr. Bush, not the President. But well, Mr. Bush is a president of a company in uh, in Memphis, Tennessee. And uh, I knew him from Memphis, Tennessee. And so I walked in and said, Mr Bush, I'm glad to see you, sir. I said, Do you mind if I sit with you? He said, No, sit on down, sit down there, I'd be glad to have you. I said, I'd like to sit with so I talked to him on these planes. I am not too experienced at flying. And we flew to Knoxville. That's in the old days, flew, landed Knoxville Airport, got out and walked around the plane. Wasn't that something? The old days. You gotta walk around the plane, you know, then get back on again. And uh, we got on. That thing left Knoxville, one of the great smoky mountains. And brothers, something happened. A storm came up, and that thing being rocking back and forth, back and forth, and I thought, well, I better turn to Mr. Bush and talk to him now, get some assurance that we're okay, and I turned to him, and he raised his hand and said, please don't talk. He said, I can't. He said, don't talk. He was sick, and he motioned for the girl. She brought him a cup. And he filled it, excuse me, uh, and uh, and uh, and he was, he was, he was a sick man, he was worse than I was. I was scared of him, he was playing he was playing sick, and I sat there. I grabbed the cushions of that seat, I tried to pull up, I shut my eye. I tried everything, were, but I was still scared. That thing was rocking back and forth, and all of a sudden, as I was scared to to him, the door opened up into the cockpit, there sat two pilots, one was figuring on some paper, and the other had the controls and was flying the plane. And that plane was going up and dashing down and turning over the side. The storm around the great smoke came out and just beating on it. And I looked up there, and that fellow flying the plane—you know what he's doing? Chewing chewing gum, just as slow and nice. I said, "Man, he's not scared." Why am I scared? What's the matter with me? He's flying the plane. He's sitting up there, and I, I looked at it, but all of a sudden, it came to me, God help me if he speeds up on the chewing gum. I'm going to be run for sure. I know something's wrong, but I watched him. Wait a minute. Nothing was wrong. He was a pilot. Huh? And we, we missed uh, Asheville, North Carolina. Couldn't get in there because of the storm. Had to go on to Winston-Salem and got on there. I said, I don't want to watch that man. He got off the plane, been flying it, and big, tall fellow, and just as calm as he could be. Calm as he could be. Wait a minute. I was assured of everything being all right because I looked at that pilot. But how much better when you look up to God. And He is our pilot. And we're looking to Him for guidance and direction and for safety in all of our work. Now, have faith in God. Now, the first thing, a fervent Christian, described here by Paul, is one of the faith in God. Secondly, a fervent Christian looks for the return of Christ. He looks for the return of Jesus Christ Jesus said, John 14, 3, I will come again and receive you unto myself, but where I am there, you may be also. One verse in 20 in the New Testament refers to the second coming. One verse in 20. All the way through. In the Bible alone, 1,500 times the second coming is mentioned in some way, Old and New Testament. All the way through. every minute. The second coming. The second coming will help you to understand your Bible. Oh, I feel so sorry for folks that don't understand the Word of God on the second coming. And churches that never hear about it. They're not pre-millennial. They are not premillennial. they do not know what the Word teaches. And uh, know your Bible. The second coming will help you to understand your Bible. Then the second coming will help you to keep your life in order. Why? Because you're going to stand before the judgment seat of Christ. You've got to give an account of yourself. And you better be ready. And He's coming. He may come today. Again, the second coming will make you a soul winner. Will make you a winner soul. And God wants to use you. That's your main business. And you should be witnesses unto me. We're going to be witnessing for Him night and day, night and day. The winning of his soul, winning of his soul, and getting people to the Lord. Now, a fervent of Christ, he is coming again. He is coming again. I went to the seminar in Louisville. I took senior Greek under the A.T. Robertson, perhaps known as the best Greek scholar the world ever known, and a, an amazing man. I had three years of Greek last year under Dr. Robertson. Had it all, but didn't know one thing about the second coming. I read the New Testament through in the Greek, all the way from Matthew to end of Revelation, Every sign signed a paper to that effect. But nothing is said about the same coming, very strangely. And I had nothing at all. I went away to my, my, my second church in Greenbrier, Tennessee, near Nashville, a little country church. I lived in a little empty room in the back of the building that they built for me, a little thing about uh, eight or ten feet wide, about ten, twelve feet long. I lived there for three solid years. No bathroom facility, nothing at all, just that little room. Didn't have any kitchen, didn't have any way to cook food, and I learned to visit my members at 12 noon. And uh, when I got there at 12 noon, they'd have to invite me to eat, and that's how I got by, and I lived there. But wait a minute. In that little room, I I began studying my Bible more. I never owned a King James. I had the 1901 version of the Bible used in the seminary, and that's all. But I began reading one day and read in John fourteen three. Jesus said, I will come again. That got hold of me. I said, I don't know what I'm going to do. I'm going to take my Bible and go all the way through from first to last and mark every verse in the Bible refers remotely to the second coming of Christ. And I did so. And I preached my first sermon on a Sunday morning at that little church in Greenbrier, Tennessee, on the second coming of Christ. And uh, I, I didn't know the technical name. I'd never seen a book by Torrey or uh, Pettingale, these men on the Bible. I never had the Scofield Bible in my hand at that time. Didn't know a thing about it. But I took the Word of God as I had it. And began to study and read and preach on the second coming. And God began to bless and soul her I remember the first Sunday when a man came up to me at the end of the hour. He said, sir, I heard you on the second coming this morning. He said, you know what you are? I, thought, I said, I don't know what I am, but I know I believe the Bible. And I believe in the second coming. He said, you're premillennial. I said, is that good? He said, that's Perfect. Wait a minute. I didn't understand the term. I later did, of course. I bought books to read and study and got into it. But I missed the whole thing all the way through. But I'm going to tell you this. The second coming will change your life. And the second coming, the thought of it, will make you a wide awake Christian because he may come today. He may come before this service is over. He may come before you get home tonight, tomorrow. And He may come at any moment of time. He said, I will come again. And we're to be ready and watching. Watching, therefore, no man knows the hour of the coming of the Son of Man. And Jesus is coming. And we've got to be ready for the second coming of Christ. Uh, I'm amazed at things that happen. I had a little experience back when I was a pastor. I conducted an average of three funerals per week for 40 years. We're on radio every day, every day. And uh, many people would call for me to come, and I, I didn't watch that. I finished up one day at the old uh, cemetery on the edge of Lookout Mountain, beautiful place. And I read from First Thessalonians chapter 4, and uh, the last portion of it, on the second coming of Christ. And uh, I read it all, I had prayer with the family, and the family left the grave aside while were getting the cars to leave. And I stood there for a moment, and the undertaker was standing there, and he came over to me. He said, uh, Brother Robertson, I go to church, I'm a professing Christian. But he said, I don't know a thing about the second coming. He said, not one thing do I know. And he said, I've been in this business of of the undertaking in 35 years. He said, I've heard you preachers mention the second coming in 35 years. He said, would you please take a moment to tell me what it means? Can you imagine that? And this dear man, a gracious, dignified fellow, been in that business 35 years. He said, I've heard them all, but I don't know what it means. And I looked at the same scripture and began talking about the coming of Jesus Christ. I told you about the rapture. I told about judgment seat, the marriage of the lamb, the revelation. The great tribulation, huh? I gave it all. And stood, he stood there with his mouth wide open. He said, I've never heard all of that. He said, look at this. I've been in this business all of these years. But he said, I never have known a thing about it at all. And we stood there for a long time discussing the second coming. I'm saying to all of you, uh, know what God teaches in his word on the second coming. Now you get it. Get it right. And stay with it. And stay with it night and day. And uh, teach from the word of God. Watch therefore, for ye you know neither day nor day are the hour wherein the Son of Man cometh, and stay on your toes. Now, that's number two. Number three, a fervent Christian has a concern for souls. A fervent Christian has faith in God. A fervent Christian, in looking to the future, the coming of Christ, a fervent Christian has a concern for the souls of men. And Acts one eight, and ye should be witnesses unto me. A witness tells what he knows. That's a witness. You tell what you know. That's all the way through. You don't have to have any special courses. Just If you're saved and you believe the Bible, you can tell people what you know. And this is it. And you're telling people what you know. I read somewhere in a book that a speck of radium, too small to be seen with the naked eye, has power to ring a bell for 3,000 years. I couldn't believe any of it. I know nothing about radium, so I put the little uh, clipping aside didn't think so much about it. And uh, I remember it. But one day, I was walking through a hospital in, in Memphis, Baptist Hospital. And a doctor came up, and I knew the doctor. And he said, I want, I want you to see something. He said, what I have in my hand here is worth more than $100,000. I said, man, what you, could you have in your hand worth more than 100000 He said this, and he opened his hand. There was a tiny vial of a certain type. He said, that's radium. I'm moving from one location to another location on the authority of the hospital. But I thought you'd like to know that, like to see that. You said that's worth more than $100,000 in turn and walk away. I went back to what I read about it, a speck of radium having power to ring a bell for 30,000 years or whatever number of years it was. And I said, Man alive. And that fellow had that uh, in his hand. But I said, You know, there's something that I know that'll ring bells for longer than three or 30,000. If people come to Jesus Christ, the bell ring forever and forever. And we've got to be soul winners and go after soul and tell people of Jesus, the loving Savior. I love that old story of Texas where the evangelist preached. And he gave an invitation one night. He said, if somebody in this tent led you to the Lord, would you go and stand around them? And a few came up on the platform and stood with him. A few said, the pastor over here, and some over here and over here. But the biggest crowd gathered over here about a little lady sitting on a tent bench. And a big crowd gathered around her. And when they finally discovered, sitting on the bench in the center of the crowd, a little grandmother who have been witnessing to her neighbors and friends, her family for years and years, had led scores to the Lord. Almost a forgotten woman, but she was used of God as a faithful witness. Now, God will use you, and let God use your life, and be a witness for Christ, be a soul winner for the Lord Jesus Christ. What a beautiful, wonderful, blessed thing it is. I came up in front of the church one morning, Sunday morning, and one of the ushers came to me. And he said, Brother Roberts, I have something for you. And he handed me a little yellow ball, a little yellow ball, the kind you buy in a dinosaur. If you drop it on a hard surface, it bounces freely. And he handed me a little thing. Well oh, I said, Sir, why you give me that? He said, That belonged to my nephew. My nephew died last week, and they want you to have the ball. I said, Why? I don't understand that. He said, Well, I'll tell you what happened. He said, Last week at some location, not far from Chattanooga, he said, My little nephew was standing in the living room tossing that ball in the air and catching it in his hands. And the moment he said to his mother and dad, he said, watch me, I'm going to catch it in my mouth. And he tossed it up in the air and caught it in his mouth and it went down into his windpipe he began to choke. He fell to the floor. Mother and dad came and tried to get it out, tried to reach in, pull it out, and, and shook him and, and everything he could. And they, they finally got the neighbors and said, let's get him to the hospital. So they rushed out and put him in the hospital. Mother and dad stood held him in their arms. And the boy was choking. The color was changing. And uh, a man driving the car rushed and got to the hospital. Somebody notified the hospital. And the doctor were waiting at the door when they drove up. And when they drove up, he walked out of the car quickly, opened up the door, looked inside. He said, we don't need to hurry. He's dead. He choked to death in that little yellow ball. He said, bring the body inside, if you will, and I'll take that ball out of his throat and have just a word to the family. And they carried the boy inside. And the doctor reached him with instruments and took out the little yellow ball and walked over and gave it to the father. The father was standing there with tears streaming down his face, didn't know what to say, didn't know what to think. The mother was standing there. But the doctor gave a little yellow ball to the father. And the father looked at the yellow ball and turned to my usher of the church, the man who talked to me that Sunday morning, and said, take that and give that to Brother Robertson. Well, I said, I don't understand what you mean. Oh, he said, that's easy. He said, my nephew was 11 years old. He went to Camp Joy, and he got saved. He came home and told Mother and Dad, and they got saved. They want you to have a little yellow ball. If you're my home today, go back to my study. Right on the desk in front of me where I study, I put that little yellow ball to remind me what it means to win a soul to Christ. My dear friend, there isn't anything greater in this world that you can do than to tell someone about Jesus. And what they respond is up to them, but you're to witness. You're to be the witness for him and God will empower you with the Holy Spirit to be a faithful witness, and you can do the job that ought to be done. Not soulful in business, fervent in the spirit, serving the Lord. Oh, what a blessed thing. With this act, Lord, I preached the other day up in West Virginia, and uh, had some great services. and many were saved. One lady came board along with others and said, I, I want to be a soul winner, and she went home that night. And she waited for the husband to come in. They'd been married for years. He drank and drank liquor. They gambled. He came in late. And when he came in, she said, Husband, I promised the Lord tonight I'd talk to you about Jesus. And I won't talk to you right now. I said, No, I don't hear it. I'm not concerned about that at all. But said, I want to do it. If you'll let me talk. He said, No, I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to do it. You can do what you want to do. I don't want to hear about him. I, I'm enjoying my life. I like to drink. I like to gamble. And uh, I don't want to hear that all. Well, she said, all right, but said, if you're going to do that, said, I'm going to pray for you all night long. She, he said, pray all you want. Doesn't it bother me? I'm going to sleep. But she, he didn't figure on something. She didn't pray silently. She prayed loud. He went in the bedroom next to the living room of that country home and tried to go to sleep, and he couldn't. She was in there praying, Oh, God save this soul. He's going straight to hell. And he, she cried and cried. He got out of bed and came in and said, You've got to stop that. I can't sleep. You'll keep me awake. He said, No, I'm going to pray for you all night long and uh, he said no no I don't want that but he went back to bed and tried to sleep and uh, she kept on praying 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 aloud and praying for him just praying for him to be saved and she uh, uh, used all the scriptures she knew and she added everything in she could think about to, to wake him up and keep him awake and finally the second time came back in there he said you can't keep this up this keeps me awake said I got to go to work in the morning and said I don't care I want to pray for you all night long and finally in desperation this actually happened and he said wife if you, if I would go to church to you tomorrow night and hear that fellow Lee Robertson, would you, would you quit that praying? Oh, she said, yes, if you go to church tomorrow night, uh, I'll quit praying. He said, all right, I'll, I'll go. And uh, so she stopped her praying out loud for the night. I think she must have prayed on anyway, but not, not allowed. Next night, I came back to preach in the church. And the building was uh, packed in jam, chairs in the aisle. And our priest gave an invitation, many were saved. I said, before we go, there's someone else here tonight. You'd like me to pray for you to be saved someday. You want to be born again, would you? Read and uh, over on my right side, next to the wall, a man is sitting in a folding chair. And he raised his hand. And I said, sir, you want me to pray for you? He said, yes, I do. I said, better say, why don't you come on and get saved tonight? He said, no, just pray for me. And I said, uh, well, let's, let's have a song. So the pastor led the singing. And I just picked up a Bible and walked back to this fellow. He was sitting down. He'd had a wreck in his car Saturday night, had injured his back, and now this is up Tuesday night, and we're sitting down because of that. I get out in front of him with a Bible in hand and I said, sir, you need to be saved. You're going to hell. You're lost. The Bible says, he that believe that God is condemned already. You're condemned now. You need Jesus. I said, no, no, I don't want any of that. I don't want that. And I kept on doing my best, and finally, I, he, he was adamant. He wouldn't move. I said, sir, I'm going, but I you, I'm going to warn you. One of these days, you're going to drive your car down the road, you're going to have a wreck, and you're going to be killed, and you'll be in hell instantly. I said, if you want that, okay. I didn't know he'd had the wreck on Saturday night. So I left him, walked back to the platform. I as I got back on the platform, that that big fellow came, run down the aisle. He was a big man, run down the aisle. He grabbed the preacher. That preacher, that man scared me to death. He said, I don't want to go to hell. I had a wreck Saturday night, and almost got killed, and could have been killed. And I would have been in hell now if, 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 if I died from that wreck. He said, I want to get saved now. He knelt down in the front. The pastor led him to the Lord. And the man was beautifully, wonderfully saved. And the crowd rejoiced. You know how being in a, a, a small-town church with a man, an old sinner, getting saved? They were so happy about it all. And the preachers said, let this convert stand up there. And this fellow stood at the end of the line. And... Uh, uh, I, I I thought it was a beautiful uh, 10 or 12 people getting saved and standing there. And he said, now come and shake hands with all of them. And uh, he said, Brother Robertson, you have a closing prayer. I go to the door and shake hands with the people going out. And so I got ready to pray. And when I did, this fellow uh, on the front, uh, Mr. Dooley, raised his hand. And uh, I had to ask him what he wanted. I said, sir, uh, can I help you in some way? He said, yes, if you don't mind. I'd like to be baptized tonight. I got saved. I want to be baptized too. Well, I said, Sir, that's wonderful, but I don't think they could baptize you tonight because the baptistry is empty. It takes a long time to fill it, I'm sure. He said, I don't care about that. I think I'm the saved, born again now, and I want to be baptized. So I turned to the pastor and said, Pastor, this man wants to be baptized tonight. He said, Tell him it takes an hour and a half to fill a pool. And I said, Sir, it takes an hour and a half to fill that pool up. He said, I'd be glad to wait. I said, uh, Pastor, he said, you got to wait. Pastor, shouted me over the audience again from the front door. He said, tell him the water would be ice water. And uh, I said, Brother Doolittle, the water would be ice water. You consent? He said, try me. I said, Pastor, he said, try me. He said, all right. He sent two men down the aisle on one side. They came up and turned that water on, came gushing into that pool, and we, I had the closing prayer. And when I closed the prayer, believe it or not, the whole audience sat down. They didn't want to leave. They wanted to see him baptized. Amen. And, he said, uh, and we sang. We sang almost all the songs in the hymn book, I think. And we sang and we sang. And getting up toward midnight. And, uh, and we were still singing. And uh, finally we got up to the time. And somebody came around to me and said, that The pool was about full now. I think can get ready. The pastor's going back to change clothes. So the pastor's already going back. So I sat down in the front. This fellow, dude has just been saved. Sitting there with a songbook in his hand. Didn't know one song the other. But he's doing his best. And having a great time. And we're all sitting there waiting for him to be baptized. I went out and said, Brother Dooley, if you go back now and get ready, they got a pair of white pants with a white shirt, they would be baptized. He said, I'm not going. I said, man, you've got to go. I said, we wait all this time for this. I said, look at this crowd sitting here waiting. I said, you've got to go. He said, no, sir. I'm not going back there. I said, sir, why aren't you? He said, I don't want to go back there and change clothes. I want to get baptized just like I got saved. With my coat on, my pocketbook in my pocket, I, everything everything that I got to save this way tonight I want to get back I said you win I said pastor come in and the pastor came in you should have seen said He thought the world would come to an end. And uh, I said, we're ready, we're ready. I took Mr. Doodle by the arm myself and led him up to the top of the that was on one side of the building, not the back on one side. Led him up and down the steps. And he baptized him with his suit on, his shoes, socks, all of it. I mean, baptized. And he came out of the water shouting and rejoicing and praising God. And that crowd, it was almost midnight then. And they were just as happy as they could be and rejoicing. And he came down the front and the crowd then began to disperse. And he came and talked to me down the front and water all over the carpet ruined the carpet and uh everyone didn't didn't bother him a bit suit of clothes on all of it tied all and uh, soaking wet we finally got him out to his car and he had borrowed a car he wrecked his car saturday night he had borrowed one so he got in and his wife got in with him and they uh, opened the window he opened the window and waved that wet arm at me and uh said goodbye and thank you, thank you I said I'm glad I'm saved tonight and drove on down the highway Pastor said, Brother Robertson would you mind just coming over the home and let's have a prayer together before you go back to your motel room and he said, this is an unusual night and it was I never saw anything like it and uh, went back to his home we were sitting there and a few minutes went by somebody knocked the front door he said, who in the world could that be way after midnight then and he went to the door and I went with him and there stood Mr. Dooley soaking wet. Went. He said, Gentlemen, I just came out to tell you something. I got saved tonight. He said, I'm in it. He said, My wife led me to the Lord actually because she's the one who begged me to get saved and kept after me. And he said, Just want you to know. He said, I mean to live for Christ all of the days of my life. And we said, God bless you. Had a prayer and he started out. Started to leave. He stopped about midway down the walkway. I didn't know what in the world he was doing. He said, uh, gentlemen, he said, I want you to know, he said, I'm in business. I got saved. The old world is behind me. And he said, I mean that for every part of my life. Then he didn't have to say this, but he did. He said, when I drove away from the church tonight, after talking to Brother Robertson, I drove down the highway. I did what I do all of the time. I reached down to the seat of my car and picked up my package of cigarettes and put one in my mouth and started to smoke he said I remember I was saved I lowered the window and threw the cigarettes out he said that may be a small thing but he said I mean to serve God and live for him all of my life wait a minute that's what the Lord can do be a witness for him be a fervent witness for Christ may we pray Heavenly Father we pray now this morning for all of us here that we will be witnesses for the Savior we'll do our best to appoint people to the Lamb of God have your way with everyone we pray in this auditorium, heads about, eyes are closed, is there someone this morning upon your heart, maybe one person, maybe more than one, you're thinking of them right now. Right now, I want you to pray for them. Dear Lord, save my son, my daughter, my wife, my husband, my grandparents, my neighbor. I want you to pray right now. But you got someone, some definite person for whom you're praying at this very moment of time. If that's true... Would you just quietly slip your hand up? I'd like to know. You're praying for someone now. Now now write it down in your memory. As sure as you're praying, and as sure you're faithful to the Lord, something's going to happen. God's going to save some souls through your efforts and your witnessing for Him. Now, blessed Father, we pray, and save everyone for whom a hand was raised this morning. Bring them to the Savior. Lead and guide us whole. For Jesus' sake, Amen and Amen. Oh, how I love Jesus! Oh, how I love Jesus! Oh, how I love Jesus because He first. Sing, generally. Sing, generally. You listen, we'll sing it with you. You sing the tenor. Oh, how I love Jesus. Oh, how I love Jesus. Oh, how I love Jesus. Because he first loved me. Sing it again. Lord, send a revival. Let it begin in me. Sing it now. Lord, send a revival. Lord, send revival. Lord, send a revival. And let it begin in me. Thank you for listening to the Classic Sermons podcast from PreachTheBible.org a ministry of North Valley Baptist Church in Santa Clara, California. To listen to many more powerful sermons, visit our website, preachthebible.org.